the first time I set up a Bitcoin node, you know, I just thought it was an awesome experience to participate in a decentralized network. Uh, you know, even though I'm, I was one of 10,000 plus nodes, it, it felt like I was contributing to something that was open source and, you know, providing security to a, a new form of money uh, that could potentially, you know, have, have a bigger role to play in the future. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. So welcome, everybody. We're we're here today. Uh, Ryan and I are meeting with Kevin Kelly, who is a leader on the mining team within Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. And we're going to stray away from the, the current events to focus more in depth around Bitcoin mining. Kevin, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, happy to be here, Jason. The roles have reversed. I'm usually the one asking the hard questions. So I have to admit, I may be a little nervous. So easy on me, at least initially. We'll start out with an easy one for you guys, hopefully. I'd like to understand for for both of you guys, what is it that drew you into Bitcoin mining? I mean, I I get a lot of people falling down the crypto rabbit hole and in those origin stories, but you guys are in a very unique and important space within the, the ecosystem. So Ryan, why don't why don't you start? And then Kevin, after Ryan goes, why don't you tell me what it is that that brought you into mining? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think the journey was a little bit more organic. And when you speak to others in the industry, it feels the same way, right? Where people in some cases make the conscious decision that they want to do this for a living and others really just, and it seems like more people just kind of stumble upon it. But for me, I got into blockchain and crypto because I was really attracted to the decentralized aspects of certainly transactions, but also the infrastructure required to facilitate those transactions um, and all of the benefits that come along with the decentralization aspect of it. And so I worked on use cases on top of different blockchain technologies and different crypto applications. And then the opportunity arose to get more involved on the mining side, which again was a really interesting opportunity to really get hands-on with the infrastructure. And so for me, it's really about helping support this network, right? Um, and we can talk a little bit more about what the Bitcoin miners role is is in, in doing that um, and, and really kind of helping usher the technology along, I think is, is really what attracted me. Great. So Kevin, now we heard a little bit about Ryan's background and, and what pulled him in. What was it that brought you into this space? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think for me, it was t- two main things that drew me in. One, coming from more of a, like a data analyst background, you know, I think learning more about the economics for miners. I think that was one area that really uh, was interesting to me. Um, and then secondly, you know, the first time I set up a Bitcoin node, you know, I just thought it was an awesome experience to participate in a decentralized network. Uh, 
you know, even though I'm, I was one of 10,000 plus nodes, it, it felt like I was contributing to something that was open source and, you know, providing security to a, a new form of money uh, that could potentially, you know, have, have a bigger role to play in the future. So, yeah, I'd say those two things in particular drew me in. It is, it is kind of fascinating, right? Because it's an opt-in environment. And a lot of people may wait for an invitation to join something, but in, in the case of Bitcoin and, and, and crypto more generally, it seems that uh, more often than not, people aren't necessarily being invited in. They're choosing to join this community, this ecosystem for one reason or another. So I appreciate you guys sharing that. And I, I'm going to, to start out with a question about how you would describe Bitcoin mining to say a fifth grader, but Maybe I'll even offer a little bit of an analogy and how I try to explain it to people. I come from a, a family where people are more hands-on, a lot more tangible work. And I think if I were to explain to my grandfather, who was a mechanic, how does this work? I would basically use a car analogy and say that, you know, a lot of people think about Bitcoin as a car. They see the outside and they're attracted to the value that they see. Maybe it's the speed of transactions, the ability to remove intermediaries, but they don't necessarily look at how that happens. So I go back to the car analogy. It looks really flashy from the outside, but you really have to pop the hood to understand what's happening. So I sort of describe Bitcoin mining as the engine that would power that car. Uh, it's overly simplified for sure, but Kevin, how do you describe it to people when they're asking for the Bitcoin 101? Talk to me like I'm a fifth grader. Yeah, sure. Um, so put really simply, miners help to facilitate the transaction verification process for the Bitcoin network. And to use your car analogy, miners compete with one another. So I may drive a Toyota Corolla and you may drive a, a really fast you know, race car and you might be using a high tech engine that might be the newest generation miner out there, whereas I'm using a really old and a much older car. And we're competing with one another essentially to solve for what's called a valid hash or a valid proof of work, which we can get into at a later point. But whoever can achieve this puzzle first, solve for this valid hash first, and whoever has a better car, which in this case it would be you, you'd be much more likely to solve for this valid hash and therefore get a block reward as a result of your efforts to the uh, network. Very cool. So you talk about block rewards. A lot of people think about the Coinbase, which is actually the newly minted coin that is paid to the winner of a block. But there's a little bit more to the block reward. Ryan, can you tell us what, what are some of the components beyond the Coinbase? Yeah, so there's really two key pieces, Jason. The, the first um, is the block subsidy, right? And so that is the, the amount of newly minted Bitcoin that is basically being generated with every block that's mined, right? And currently, um, that's 6.25 Bitcoin. Um, and it gets, you know, that amount gets cut in half, um, you know, every four years through, you know, what we call the halving or halvening, depending on what part side of the argument you're on. Um, and that next event is going to be um, 
targeted for for late April of next year, um, in which will you know the six point two five will get in ha- cut in half again. So that's um, that's the first piece, and the second piece um, has has traditionally been the minority of what miners um, generate in terms of revenue, and that's transaction fees of the transactions that are contained um, within that block. Um, and I say historically has been the minority because we have been recently um, seeing you know something slightly different where. Um, transaction fees are actually becoming a bigger part of that thanks to you know a lot of the activity that we're seeing with BRC20s um, and with ordinals and, and just generally speaking with inscriptions and so that you know with that increased activity we've seen you know a significant increase in transaction fees but generally speaking you know it's it's really about the the, the block subsidy um, that is kind of you know incentivizing a lot of the economic activity that we're seeing around mining currently that that that's great so um when you said brc 20s for those who may not know it's a type of standard where you're attributing uh certain characteristics to a particular unit of of bitcoin a a satoshi so if, if i were to sort of summarize what i just heard from you there is the base reward which is what the miners are competing for and that base reward is consistent Right now, it's 6.25. I believe that's we've had three having so far. Originally started at 50. But that other more variable component of the block reward is associated with transaction fees. So sort of luck of the draw. If it's a full block, there are people who are willing to pay up for block space. They may be paying premiums for their transactions to be processed faster. Uh, in that case, you could end up with a higher total reward versus uh, maybe a lower volume period, lower block space period, the transaction fee might be less than the the block subsidy. That's a really good way of putting it. I would just add to further break it down that block subsidy is a known variable when it comes to the economics, you know, and profitability for miners. And then that transaction fee that Ryan just spoke to is an unknown variable. And to give a little more color to that, in the last two years, transaction fees have roughly made up like one to 2% of total block rewards. So really small amount. And in more recent weeks, as Ryan alluded to, we saw certain days where that transaction fee made up like 40 plus percent of the total block reward. So it's a really, you know, unknown variable that at times can spike, but it's, you know, it's, it's really anyone's guess, like, if that spike that we recently saw will be sustained going forward. That's got to make it tough for for folks who are modeling out. I would assume you'd probably go with the base case. One of the beauties around the Bitcoin network and Bitcoin's value proposition is that, you know, there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin in circulation. And the programmatic kind of enforcement of monetary policy is that you can basically, you know, rely on that 6.25 Bitcoin until late April of next year, and then it will get cut in half, right? And and so in terms of being able to model revenue, um, that is a very kind of valuable input, right? Um, that you can more or less rely on. Now, what and, and I say more or less because the other variable that is gonna, is going to be critical to that is the the total network hash rate and the difficulty to mine, right? As we know, you know, we've continued to push new all-time highs with the total amount of hash rate or compute power um, on the network, and as a result of that, it's become more more and more difficult um, to to win a block or mine a block, right? Um, and so. 
um, what that kind of leads to is, you know, you have to kind of weigh, all right, this, I know this is what I'm going to get, you know, if I, you know, mine a block, but, you know, my probability of mining that block might become, you know, much lower over the coming period, you know, whatever your period you're trying to model out um, because of, you know, changes to the, to the hash rate and, and thus the difficulty um, to mine. And, and just for, for clarity's sake, um, that difficulty adjustment really is intended to basically maintain some level of consistency in the amount of blocks we're seeing in a given period, basically making sure that there's a new block mined every 10 minutes. And if we're, you know, mining blocks slower or quicker than that, um, every 2016 blocks, which is about two weeks, um, the network basically self-corrects, right, to, to bring the mining difficulty back in line so that at our current amount, the current amount of compute power on the network, we're back at effectively 10 minutes, more or less, um, per block. I'm glad you dove into that because that that difficulty adjustment is something that can be hard for people to understand. I've sort of been thinking about it as in another al- analogy, going back to the car for a moment. If, if I'm in traffic, i.e. there are more cars in the road trying to get to the same place I'm trying to get to, I want some type of pressure release. Or if I'm going down the highway too fast, there may be an authority figure out there who wants to make sure that I slow down to be a little bit more compliant. So I could see there being a, a comparison on those difficulty adjustments to allow for increasing the speed or slowing it down because we have a goal of maintaining a, a relative order. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great way to look at it, Jason. So Kevin, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the consensus method. So a lot of people understand proof of work as you, as you described it as a competition to solve for the hash. But you've mentioned earlier, some people might be in a Corolla, others might be in a sports car. Um, how has that mining industry evolved to be more sports car oriented than it has been previously? So the the metric that a lot of miners use to assess sort of like the engine power of your compute power um, is a metric called your hash rate that you generate per second. So going back to your analogy, you know, uh, Jason, if you're driving a sports car, you know, you might be operating at, let's say, 150 terahashes per second. And all that means is that you're generating over a, like trillions of or like yeah, trillion, over trillions of like hashes per second where you're guessing for the right like puzzle, which is equivalent to a valid hash. And, you know, similarly, I, you know, with my Corolla uh, would be hashing with a, a much less powerful machine. So the ASIC that I might be using, and ASIC stands for uh, Application Specific Integrated Circuit, the, the ASIC machine that I might be using might be operating at like a tenth of the power of your engine. So it might be at like 15 terahashes per second. And therefore, you know, I'd be much less likely to actually find a block proposal compared to your car or your engine. I think we've taken this analogy much farther than I thought we'd actually be able to take it. But I, I would say, Jason, to your point around the kind of hardware mix, right, I think that is really dependent upon, of course, the the, the total network hash rate, the difficulty to mine, as well as the individual miners, you know, costs, right, which is, you know, one of the largest 
the largest cost for miners is the power to run their operation. And so if you are paying, and I'm rounding numbers here, if 10 cents per kilowatt hour versus five, the type of machine in which you're able to profitably operate will be different, right? But miners are incentivized based on kind of the network dynamics to reinvest and run the most efficient and powerful machines that they can in order to, again, to take the analogy a little bit further, to stay in the race. Because at the end of the day, if you're in a finely tuned sports car and Kevin is in his regular four-door sedan, right, it's not going to make sense for him to stay in the race because he's just not going to be, it's not going to be economically viable. He's going to have to keep putting gas in that car and he's never going to win a prize for winning a race just because everyone else has kind of upgraded to the newest, latest, most powerful hardware. Absolutely. So I love the fact you're diving into the economics, right? Because you talked about the revenue side being the block subsidy and transaction fees. Now you're getting into a little bit of the operating side. So you have costs of machines, right? So the hardware, these miners, you talked about specialized hardware that can operate at much higher rates of of hash computation. And then you talk a little bit about um, the, the cost of energy. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about how the industry has evolved over the past few years around that energy attribute of the the cost revenue model. Yeah, sure. So I think if we take a step even further back, right, people were able to do this in their living rooms with just, you know, a tower of, you know, CPUs and, you know, really very early on and then GPUs, right? So the the transition, I would say, from that type of technology into ASICs is where we probably initially started to see the beginning of the maturation of this industry, where these were, you know, application-specific pieces of hardware that were developed just for, you know, this computational process, right? And so with that, and, and since then, with the, you know, continued development of the industry, you've seen these operations that just are running tens and thousands tens of thousands of these machines consuming you know megawatts to gigawatts of power right and so i think in the last probably you know 3 to 4 years we've seen you know tremendous investment um you know capital investment in these operations both in the united states and outside the united states so we can certainly talk about the geographic distribution um but you know basically to scale up these facilities. And so now what you're really looking at um, are these, you know, hyperscaled, systemically important <laughs> to power distribution um, sites, right, that are that are consuming a lot of power. And so when you think about, um, you know, miners, right, you're, you, it's skewing more towards these large operations and less people, you know, doing it in their homes. Having said that, there is, a, you know, a very passionate, uh, community subset of the community that are quote unquote home miners that are actually in fact doing it in, in their home or in their business right and so um, and, and it, when you leave the United States I think it even becomes more popular um, in certain parts of the world and so just to summarize what we've seen is tremendous scale to push you know new all-time highs that we never really saw before that that's really informative and I have to say I love when you go out on crypto Twitter and somebody posts about home miners winning a block rewards, it's like the entire community rejoices and like yeah. celebrate. Like it just floods my feed with the, the setup. And some of those setups are visually demonstrated on those on those social media sites. And you can look at it and think, wow, like this truly is a home setup. Like somebody might have a bunch of sticks running out of like a, what seemed to be a very simple setup, but 
um, economically, that could be really game changing for those miners. And, and to know that there is a relative fairness uh, because the way that the, the, um, the protocol has been written, it doesn't matter the size. There is an element of luck, but you get into probable statistics. And as you mentioned, those larger scaled operations have a higher probability of more consistent rewards. But in that variability, when the home miner wins, it's, uh, it's almost in some respects like uh, a windfall. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, even the largest, most scaled miners are still, you know, th- this is enter mining pools, right? Which is another critical piece of this, this infrastructure. Um, and so, Kevin, do you want to you talk a little bit about the role of the pool here? Glad you bring it up because we've talked about the luck-based process of miners for finding block proposals. And what you have a lot of miners do, they actually end up joining what we call mining pools, which you can think of as like opting into a, a health insurance plan um, to de-risk your operation. Um, and ultimately what these mining pools do, you sort of contribute your hash rate, so your engine power. And then every time there's a wo- reward across you know, a pool of miners, that reward gets spread out based on your proportion of hash rate, based on your proportion of engine power. Um, and I, I think just tying back to what you know, Ryan was just speaking to, um, in terms of like real day events that we've seen over the last couple of years, we saw the shift of a lot of hash rate in 2021, um, when a lot of hash rate left uh, China due to regulations. And similarly with mining pools, we've seen a shift in recent years to more uh, U.S.-based mining pools as the geographical uh, sort of hash rate has shifted across different regions. That's great. I think of mining pools in some ways as uh, how communities were built, right? Sometimes there's safety in numbers or even more consistent probability of being able to sustain that community when there are more participants in there operating and working towards a common goal. Institutional grade commercialized operations, they're looking to make their kind of quote unquote cash flow, which in this case is denominated in Bitcoin coming via mined blocks as consistent as possible, right? And so the more hash rate that you have within a pool, the the higher the likelihood that that pool is going to win blocks. And the more blocks it wins, the the more it's able to kind of distribute to its um, participants on a pro rata basis, basically, however much they're contributing to the whole, um, they're going to receive back in terms of rewards. So really, it's about, it's about smoothing out, you know, um, revenue that's being paid out as a result of this commercial process. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like when your dollar cost average into like a foreign exchange transaction, that that smoothing of the volatility. And I I know they're very different things, so I don't want to imply that it's the same. But um, Kevin, you were mentioning that there's been a bit of a geographic shift. Ryan, you were talking a little bit about how some of that hash rate has moved from other countries and, and into the U.S., I guess I would ask you guys, what are some of the benefits that have been realized, maybe ancillary benefits have been realized as we've seen a shift in the geographic location? And the data that we have around this, you know, isn't perfect, has never been perfect. One of the most frequently cited sources is over a year old at this point, and that's the uh, Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. 
They put out a whole bunch of different metrics around, you know, the Bitcoin network, um, including its total energy consumption, which we can talk a little bit about. Also, they have, you know, a, a presumed distribution of mining activity globally. And what that has looked like, you know, as Kevin mentioned in the U.S. the early summer of 2021, you know, we saw a pretty significant tr uh, crackdown um, of mining activity in China, which before that point was a very significant center of mining globally. Um, and so we saw a fair fairly um, large migration of that activity to the United States um, and, and to other places like Kazakhstan. And so, again, this, this data um, is as of December of uh, 2021, and, you know, this is, we're now May of 2023, right? And I suspect we'll have new data very soon. Um, Cambridge has the U.S. at 38%. Um, and notably, even though there was a ban on mining activity in China, they still believe that quite a significant amount is happening there, um, you know, at around 21%, you know, again, you know, in the end of 2021, followed by Kazakhstan and, and Canada, um, which have, you know, 13 and, and almost 7%, um, you know, at that time. And then um, when we look at the United States specifically, you know, again, it was, you know, Georgia at 31% and, and Texas at 11%, followed by Kentucky and New York with, you know, both 10 and some change. Um, I suspect when we get updated numbers, we'll see a much heavier skew both to the United States when we think about global. Um, and then from there, you know, a fairly heavy skew um, to Texas, just given the tremendous amount of build out um, that we've seen in, in the Texas region since the, these numbers were published. It's really about this industrial process that consumes a tremendous amount of um, energy in an energy dense and location agnostic way, right? And so miners are always going to be incentivized to go to the regions where we have the most abundant, cheap power. The Chining ban may have pushed people to the United States, but the, the operating environment in places like Texas has incubated that activity to far higher levels than what, you know, just re quote unquote relocated, right? Um, and so getting into a bit of what the proponents would cite as some of the biggest advantages um, really come down to the current state of the U.S.'s grid and, and some of the limitations that we're seeing um, with our transition to, you know, a greater renewable energy mix. It's no secret there is tremendous climate change issue. It's it's one of the biggest crises of this generation, um, and you know it's pretty widely known and accepted that there will need to be greater reliance on renewable energy moving forward. And so um, what that has resulted in is, you know, pretty significant investment in renewable generation infrastructure through things like the Inflation Reduction Act. But that's not enough to get us to where we need to go, right? There needs to be a tremendous overbuild in these assets um, to be able to support the broader electrification of the grid. And one of the problems with that is wind solar are far more variable in terms of their production wind isn't always blowing sun isn't always shining um, and so it creates you know some some challenges associated with supply demand balance in the grid and again this is where i become less of an expert right but the, the, the TLDR on this is it is a tremendously difficult task to be able to manage supply and demand. And one of the promises of mining is through programs like demand response is they can step in in times when there is excess capacity on the grid and be buyers of that power. And in times when that power is needed in other parts of the grid, think when everyone comes home, turns on their air conditioning, is cooking dinner. In the future, more and more people will be plugging in their electric cars, right? Miners can curtail their load or turn off completely to be 
be able to, to send that power to areas where it's needed. But I would say we have a very big energy transmission problem in this country, right? Our transmission infrastructure is ancient, right? And, and, and certainly cannot handle the amount of renewables that are coming online. So think about parts of the Midwest, certainly into Texas, where wind and solar are the most productive, to population centers, right? Even within Texas, right? From West Texas to places like Houston and Dallas, it's, it's you know, complicated. And then when you think about just on like the, the, the national level, it gets even more complicated, right? And so what, you know, miners have said is, you know, we can help incentivize the continued development of these renewable projects by being, you know, you know, basically co-located consumers of this power while we try and figure out how to solve this energy transmission problem. So those are the two of the biggest things, particularly with regard to um, ERCOT and with Texas. But, you know, that can certainly be applied in other parts of the country and also in the world. And then when we think about maybe less in uh, relation to the grid and more in relation to energy, we've seen this concept of um, flare remediation, which when we think about, again, climate change and our CO2 emissions, natural gas flaring, and certainly natural gas venting are two of the biggest problems that need to be solved from a CO2 emission standpoint. And being able to basically take that otherwise wasted gas or trapped gas and be able to repurpose it via natural gas generator through combustion into energy and then using that to support Bitcoin mining data centers is another really interesting application, right? And I guess the point is the integration with energy providers and grid operators has become much more significant. And so basically, if you're in the mining space or you're interested in the mining space, right, you equally need to understand kind of the crypto piece of it um, as you would need to understand at least the fundamentals of, of energy, right? And 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 the, really, when you get into the weeds on, on kind of what it's going to take for us to achieve our climate goals, um, there are some things, you know, that, you know, are less talked about. You certainly are not going to read about it in the mainstream media in terms of, um, you know, you know, what, what needs to happen to get us there, right? And and some of the challenges that we're going to face. So I'll stop there. I know that was a, a ton, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the, the how I think about it. If I can sort of paraphrase, because it is fascinating, right? And I appreciate your positioning yourself as not being an expert, but you're certainly very thoughtful about the space and you've been doing a lot of learning and, and, and uh, putting things into context. To sort of summarize, what I what I think about is, Miners are incentivized to seek out lower cost sources of energy. Their business model allows them to be mobile so that they can go to some of these places where energy may be stranded or unused. They're willing to put in the capital investment to develop infrastructure to support some of the renewable project growth because they can also help with some of the, the grid balancing. Now, that to me is I can move myself and work remotely because I'm going to where there is uh, ample energy or I'll say uh, affordable energy. The flip side, and Kevin, I want to bring you back in on this too, because we, we as Fidelity Center for Applied Technology have done some work. We've hosted some events and we, we actually have something out on YouTube that was really about innovation in Bitcoin mining. And one of the things that I learned back uh, in that date, I think that was September of, of 2022 when we had that, that event, we talked with some folks who were looking at um, 
converting what would be vented methane into uh, Bitcoin mining. And we talked to uh, someone who was uh, coming from the Nordics. They located a, a Bitcoin mining site close to a hydroelectric dam where the, the energy wasn't being used, but they turned around and used the heat that was produced from the miners to warm greenhouses so they could grow food uh, during seasons when they wouldn't typically. What about working in the Bitcoin mining space uh, excites you about the innovation? Miners ultimately want to find the cheapest possible cost of energy to improve their pro profitability over time. And, you know, one fascinating area is a stranded energy piece, trying to tap into areas where otherwise energy might be wasted. And I think we've, you know, we, we've seen less miners in the Washington state area. However, you know, at, at one point, I think a few years ago, we did see, you know, a good number of miners concentrate their hash rate there because there was excess sort of hydro energy to tap into. Um, and I think going forward, it, it'll be really exciting to see how these location agnostic miners, you know, where else they can tap into, um, you know, to sort of compete both um, for energy, but as well as to support a wider ecosystem, specifically the, the Bitcoin ecosystem. A lot of people probably at this point, are like, wow, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> uh, where do I go from here? This is why I don't I sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it is. It's helpful to put this in the context of it's complex and there's a lot of research. There's a lot of innovation that's occurring. I would ask you guys, could we maybe shift gears a little bit and do a, a bit of a high level comparison or um, contrasting of proof of work versus proof of stake? You know, we've talked a lot about proof of work. And one of the main things I'd highlight with proof of work is that it requires a lot of energy to compete for those block proposals. And as we've mentioned, block proposals are luck-based. With proof of stake, the system's slightly different. Validators who are the equivalent to miners in the network are randomly selected to propose blocks. So that's a nuance there that's quite different. And validators also are required to hold 32 ETH. So in the context of Ethereum, they're supposed to hold 32 ETH, which is equivalent to roughly $50,000 at stake as their incentive to behave honestly to the network. I'd also just mention too, the two key criticisms across these two different consensus me mechanisms are that with proof of work, you know, there are criticisms around the energy consumption piece of it. With proof of stake, uh, there is you know, there are those who argue that there's greater uh, security risk, you know, if you allow people to uh, basically increase their voting power or, you know, their stake in the network purely by buying more ETH. Um, so, yeah, ho hopefully that gives a good sense of the two different uh, consensus mechanisms. And, and Kevin, you, as you were talking about uh, some of the, the trade-offs, my mind jumped to the blockchain trilemma. And, you know, I was wondering if, if you might, Kevin, be able to, to share with us again, what is the blockchain trilemma? And uh, what is your view on perhaps uh, different models for different purposes? So the trilemma, you know, speaks to like how different projects or, or cryptocurrencies prioritize different aspects of, of their build. So, uh, Bitcoin prioritizes, you know, security over other features and therefore has slower block times. Um, and, 
you know, for Bitcoin, we have what average of 10 minutes uh, per block. So it's slower block times, you know, less transactions that can go through. Whereas, you know, with the system that Ethereum is built on, there's a slightly more, um, I guess, preference towards higher speeds. So higher, uh, like throughput. But where, you know, this trade-off occurs is, you know, Satoshi has mentioned in some of his earlier uh, writings, uh, if you have faster block times, you're, you're at higher risk for chain splits. And this notion of, you know, chain splits is an important consideration as you want to always know what the longest chain is. You know, if you're running a blockchain type uh, system, you know, you don't want your, your blockchain to sort of, you know, split off and for nodes and validators or miners to, to fall out of sync. So that's just a roundabout way of, of sort of speaking to block speed and maintaining security through, through that system. So just to summarize again, you've got three attributes that, that comprise the trilemma. You've got security, you've got throughput, sometimes referred to as scalability, and you have decentralization. And that, that decentralization component comes through in the security aspects as well. Um, I think there's a lot of nuance to that. And, and why I asked about fit for purpose is these are not contrasts. It's not an or, it's very much an and. And in my opinion, I think that there are different fits for different purposes. And when we think about the utilization or the reason someone chooses to engage with a particular blockchain ecosystem, uh, they, they do so based on whether or not that ecosystem is addressing their needs. Right. I, I think that's right. This is fascinating. I, I know we're going to be coming up short on time, but I just want to ask you guys, are there any other key points that you wanted to relay uh, to the audience around um, you know, 101, 201 level uh, conversation? Where, where might we find more resources where we could learn independent of, of this podcast? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, w- I would say... Um, you know, it's very hard to summarize all aspects of, of the process of mining and the, certainly uh, the dynamics of the industry in, in only 30 minutes. Um, you know, but I think that this industry has reinvented itself multiple times. Um, you know, the velocity of development that we saw and investment that we saw in 2020, 2021, and parts of 2022 was just staggering. And obviously, some of that lost momentum, you know, as we entered into the bear market, and we cert- we saw many notable, you know, failures um, in the mining space. Bankruptcies definitely was one of the harder hit parts of the industry, along with crypto lenders and certain exchanges. Now that that kind of reckoning, if you will, has happened, um, we're starting to see, you know, people presumably emerging from shelter from the crypto winter. And we're seeing, you know, continued um, development and investment in the space. It'll be an interesting year. You can never predict what's going to happen, certainly in the crypto space, but I would say uh, definitely in the mining space. Something that a lot of people in the industry are thinking a lot about is just regulation and, and what you know implications that may have. We've had proposed tax come out of the White House looking at excise tax on electricity for crypto mining in the U.S. Um, and we have similar legislation seemingly going through in Canada. Um, and so that's definitely going to be an area to watch. It is a really exciting time for miners in the space with the recent emergence of uh, ordinal theory and inscriptions and what what's you know what that's doing to. Uh, miners and mining pools. So yeah, I'd just say 
keep an eye out on current events related to some of the recent trends we're seeing. Oh, this has been great. I appreciate you guys, uh, both members of, of Fidelity Center for Applied Technologies, Bitcoin mining team, and then just generally uh, doing a ton of research in the space, uh, experimentation. So I, I think you guys are truly living the, the motto of do your own research. And we're very happy that you guys could come and sort of distill some of that for us. It's been a great conversation. So thank you for sharing your perspectives. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for uh, facilitating this discussion, Jason. Yeah, Ryan, I'll say your seat's probably safe in terms of moderating, but this has been fun for me. So. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, you did a great job. So I appreciate that. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.